We'll give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles, and the judgments he has uttered. Those are the first five verses of Psalm 105, which the first 22 verses of which are the psalm appointed for today, Thursday, June the 24th, 2021. I'm John Green, and you're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. Thank you for being along for this uh, day's study in the books of 1 Samuel, Acts, and the Gospel according to Luke. What we're seeing today is we're, we're looking for, in some ways, the roots of the failure of the nation of Israel. And we're going to see all the, those failures in all three of these lessons today and how we got to the point where they rejected Jesus as their king. And so the question that I've got for you is, is though it's not enough just to study history and say, okay, here's what happened along the way. The point of it is to say, where did we go wrong and where are we going wrong? And we've got to examine some things in our own lives, I think, in order to be able to, to, to chase this down and to see, you know, hey, this is a warning for all of us, right? So what we get here in this uh, first Samuel lesson is, is that it begins with the predicate for everything is laid right here. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet, his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And I think that's exactly where everything goes wrong, right? I mean, when people lift uh, unworthy men and women into roles of leadership in the church, then those people give us a false image of God. And that false image is, predic- is based in their own lack of faith. And I think that's what we've seen in the church over the last, whatever, 30, 40 years, whatever the number is. I'm not even sure, to be honest with you. It's very difficult to trace the roots of these things. I, I remember hearing Francis Schaeffer talk about a bishop in the Episcopal Church named James Pike, who a lot of people say what was sort of the beginning of the downfall of the church. And Pike's thing was they were getting ready to go on, I think it was Dick Cavett's show or something like that. And as they talked beforehand, Schaefer asked him a simple question, and that is, um, so what happened along the way? And Pike's response was is that he had received um, a real blessing of the presence of God in his life, and so he decided to go to seminary. And he said, what I hoped for was to get a toolkit that I could use for the rest of my life, but what I got from seminary was essentially a box of rocks nothing at all and that's where things begin to go wrong typically is in the educational system and that's what happened in many liberal seminaries they would turn out uh, men and women who were really not believers they they, they were psychologists um, who just their toolkit was religion and so that they then reinterpreted and reimagined scripture to say something else other than what it plainly says and had always been interpreted to say and so we threw out the text itself um, as just sort of a starting place, not really um, the Word of God, just some interesting stories that has sustained people down the centuries. 
Um, but they could be reimagined and new meaning put on them and throw out the parts that you don't like. And so that's what's going on here is Samuel's sons are nowhere near like the man their father was. And so they're, they're turning aside after gain. They're taking bribes, perverted justice. It's why Jesus throws the money changers and the um, sellers of sacrificial animals out of the synagogue, or the temple, sorry, sorry when he comes in after um, Palm Sunday. And that is because the, this is all about money now, and they've cheapened the gospel. They've cheapened the story of God. And so the elders then come after this, seeing these men, they say, hey, look, you're old and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. In other words, there's nothing particularly special about us. The only thing that's special about us is the thing we don't like, is that we don't have a king, so we're not like other nations. Well, we're not meant to be like other nations. That was the point of the covenant at Sinai. That was the point of saying you're a kingdom of priests, you're a holy nation serving your God. You're not to be like all the other nations. You already have a king. The one you're in a covenant relationship with is your king. And so it was intended not to have an earthly king over them. But then ultimately God gives them a king after his own heart, and then Messiah is to come from that kingly line, the tribe of Judah. And so they come and they ask for this, and it displeases Samuel, it says. And he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, these are the important words in this, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. Remember, I've said this many times, if you look back and read Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, you're, what you're going to see is is that people obeyed the voice of, and it's either God or something else. And it begins with Eve being obedient to the voice of the serpent in the garden. But it also includes uh, Abraham being ob- obedient to the voice of his wife in the matter of Hagar. It also involves Jacob being involved in obeying the voice of his mother. And so there are places again and again and again. Now, God here says, obey the voice of the people. Samuel, go ahead and do what they're asking you to do. And so he does. But he's to tell them what the problem is going to be with the king that they want. He said, obey the voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king that will reign over them. And and, and it's placed in juxtaposition to God. That, that's exactly what this, the, the statements that Samuel makes concerning this king who will reign over them are, are all predicated on juxtaposing them against the kind of king they already have in, in Yahweh. And so he's going to take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and be his horsemen and run before his chariots. He's going to take your firstborn. You can redeem your firstborn with God, but he's going to take them. This king will. He'll appoint for himself commanders of thousands and fifties and some to plow his ground and some to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. You're all going to be serfs is the whole point of this thing. But they come to the end of it and what it says is the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's God's role as king. But they want something they can see. They want something that's tangible. In spite of the fact that he has protected them and he has blessed them mightily by bringing them into the land. 
they still are going back and and preferring to be like other nations. They preferred Moses. They preferred Joshua. They prefer all these visible, tangible things that they can't see now with God. And it's because the priests, Samuel's sons, are failing to make God real to them because he's not real to the priests. And when that's the case, everything falls apart. And so after they say this, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, told them exactly what they said. And he says, obey their voice and make them a king. And then Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. You know, it's a sad, sad day. But remember that at the crucifixion, at the trial of Jesus, remember what the Jewish leaders say. We have no king but Caesar. And so this is the groundwork for that's being laid right here in this first Samuel passage where they want a king so they can be like other nations. They don't like being unique and different. Nobody does. And so what happens is is that, that we, the church, lose our saltiness and lose the light when we don't insist on the uniqueness of Jesus. And so here in this, in this passage in Luke, a dispute arose among them, the disciples, that is, the twelve, as to who was to be regarded as the greatest. And I mean, in, in comparison with Jesus, does it really matter? I mean, that's the thing is, is there's such a distinction and a difference between him and every other human being who has ever lived that does it really matter whether you're the greatest? I mean, you're fighting for the not even second place, really. It's it's like sometimes when Tiger Woods was really on, like he was at Pebble Beach in the U.S. Open. He, he goes wins going away by like ten strokes, right? I mean, he's playing a different game. I have a friend who who was a great tennis player, but he was thirtieth in the world. But he was a great tennis player, so great that a friend of mine played on college team with him. And he asked him, I asked him one time, I said, hey, I didn't realize you played with this guy. He said, oh, John. He said, we all played, we thought we played tennis, but if we did, that guy played a different game than us because he was that much better than everybody else. But when it came into, when he became a professional, he was top 30, top 35 in the world. I mean, there's a huge distinction between the greatness of Jesus and the greatness that these people aspire to, right? I mean, and and then he goes on to say, so what is greatness? He says, the Gentiles, kings, exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. For who's the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? It's clearly the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves. If you want to know the path to greatness, Jesus said, he says it's, it's serve one another, love one another. Count yourself less than the others. He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you all as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at the table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, you have a, you, that's already done, fellas. You've already got this kingdom. I've given it to you. Now I've told you how to act and how to live and how to lead in that kingdom, and that's by serving one another. And that's our call is is to do humility before the throne of Jesus because he is our king. And do we recognize that? Do we do do him the honor due to his name in our lives, or do, do we want another king? I mean, if you look at politics in America right now, you would think that we want a king. Right? I mean, it's this thing that, that says we want somebody to rule over us, and we're looking at personalities, and we're looking at whatevers, and it's, 
it's a scary thing, actually, to, to watch Christians on both sides of the aisle hate one another over some political thing and then look to that person as some sort of a messiah. We've got to be careful about that. We've got to be really careful about that, in fact. And so here we get, in this Acts lesson, we get Stephen, right? And so they're gazing at him. All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I mean, that just says, doesn't it, like, be careful here? Be really careful. And the high priest asked him, are the things they said about you true? And Stephen then begins to give them a history lesson. And it's a very strange history lesson because he, he, he starts with Abraham. So he's starting with the founding of the nation through Abraham and the call of Abraham. And he says that, that he appeared to him before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I'll show you. Then he went out of the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran, but he didn't go where he was supposed to go. He waited until after his father's died. father died and God removed him from there into this land which you're now living but he didn't get an inheritance there, not even a foot's length, he says, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child at that time. And so then God, he, he recounts the promises God made, including the promise that they would be a sojourners in a land belonging to others, and that's talking about Egypt there. And then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And the patri- and then says that Isaac became the father of Jacob, Jacob of the twelve patriarchs, and the patriarchs, Jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. He's laying the groundwork now for how we're going to get to Jesus and how we're going to get to the rejection of Jesus. He's saying this is what it's been like all along. But God was with him, Joseph, and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over his household. And then he recounts the story of the famine and that the brothers came down. Jacob sent the the brothers down to Egypt to see him and and. Then he made himself known to his brothers, and his family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and, and he died, he and our fathers. And they are carried back to Shechem, and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. And so he's giving them the, the history of the people. And the history of the people is going to include this treachery and betrayal theme all the way through it. And so... Stephen is laying the groundwork for exactly what happens with Jesus and that he's betrayed into the hands of the Romans who can put him to death. But, it, but he's betrayed by his own kinsmen in the same way that Joseph was betrayed by his own kinsmen. And there's a jealousy that's at the root of all these things. The, the people in 1 Samuel are jealous of the nations who have a king and they want a king so that they can be like those nations. And in the Luke passage, what do we got? We've got jealousy again. We've got jealousy among the apostles, and well, the disciples at that point. We've got jealousy among them about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Well, Jesus is. And then, so how do we break this thing of jealousy? And that is we begin to serve one another. We begin to consider ourselves less than an earth. If everybody has that attitude, everything works out. If one person in the church fails to have that attitude then we have a failure all the way around and that's what breaks things down and where things completely fall apart is when we forget who we are and whose we are and we lose sight of that which is beyond our sight and we begin to grasp at the things that we can see rather than the things that are unseen